The Chinese government is accused of aggressively targeting Western democracies with disinformation and hostage diplomacy. From Global News, I'm Jeff Semple, and on my new podcast, China Rising, we'll separate fact from fiction and hear from accused spies, whistleblowers, and others caught in the political crossfire. As the pandemic rages across the world and incidents of anti-Asian racism rise, listen to China Rising for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. The following episode contains disturbing descriptions of child abuse and sexual violence, and may not be suitable for everyone. It also contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. Listener discretion is advised. Think about how people come into your life. Some are through family or friends, and some are the people you work with and come to care about and connect with. In covering crime for nearly 25 years, I've met a lot of amazing people and shared so many of their stories. Those people impact me, and I keep in touch with most of them. Then, there are the connections that go much deeper. I'm sure you have them. The ones that you can't put your finger on, but the bond is just there. It's hard to explain how it happens. This is one of those stories. Well, years and years you've been taking care of my mental health, even though it's only been over the phone or over Facebook message, just having someone to talk to. When um, when I'm feeling all stressed and everything else, like it's it's been life-saving. I'm Nancy Hickst, a crime reporter for Global News. Today, on Crime Beat, I'll tell you about a little boy who was abandoned by the very people who were supposed to show him unconditional love. It just seems like I missed out on a lot that most kids usually get. To put me right into straight alcohol and drug, it's like ruined any chances that I thought I had of a going somewhere in life. I didn't try in school. I just only did enough to pass. I couldn't cope. This is the story of a boy who was looking for something that every child should have. Love and a safe place to call home. Nearly three decades ago, in the fall of 1990, Gary Prokopishin and his wife, Julie, became foster parents. They took in troubled teenage boys. The Prokopishin home was considered a home of last resort for teens who had nowhere else to go. The boys who lived there said the rules were pretty slack. Basically, they had to go to school and then come home. Sometimes they were asked to do chores. They described having all the freedom in the world. Some of those freedoms were as basic as having food whenever they wanted it. That's something they weren't always able to do in other foster homes. They were also allowed to smoke. They could have friends over, they could party, go out, and not get in trouble. Gary Prokopishin also hosted what they all referred to as guys' nights. 
He would take some of the older boys out for dinner and drinks or events like hockey games. And sometimes they'd all stay at a hotel. He made the boys feel special. And he wasn't just any foster dad. He was highly regarded as one of the top foster fathers in Calgary. And at one point, he was given the award of Foster Parent of the Year by the local Foster Parent Association. The boys, they ranged in age between 14 to 17 years. Um, and common denominators seemed to be that they all had behavioral issues or substance abuse addictions, and that they were more high needs and and then that's why they were sent to the Prohibition House. That's Calgary Police Detective Christina Witt. You'll remember Detective Witt from several previous episodes. I've said this before, but it's worth repeating. She is the very definition of a Wonder Woman. She's a veteran investigator with a PhD in criminology best practices in homicide investigations. She also has her master's in forensic and legal psychology. Detective Witt is currently a homicide investigator, but before that, she worked in the child abuse unit. When you're taking case after case after case, it's hard. And for me, it was mostly, it was that feeling of responsibility of if I don't do a a good job, this child could um, A, be victimized again, B, the offender could do it to another victim because that is common, especially on the sexual assault stuff, that they do this more than once to more than one victim. So it's a heavy burden for sure to carry. And it's isolating. As a child abuse investigator, no one, you know, most of my friends and support system, they did not want to know what I was investigating. And that was totally fair, but it's isolating because then you're not talking it out, right? You're not even talking it out with your peers because your peers don't want to know about this stuff either. It's shocking uh, what people will do to children. In the spring of 2009, Detective Witt was assigned to investigate allegations of sexual misconduct by Gary Prokopishin. My understanding was the Prokopishin foster home took in boys who um, tended to be in their later teens, who most of them had some type of addiction issue boys who had, you know, perhaps been in other foster homes and it didn't work out. And so there was some difficulties. And so then they would go to Prokopishin's home. On the surface, it appeared Prokopishin was providing a safe haven for kids. I think from the outside, potentially, you know, he's getting those accolades because it, for all intents and purposes, he's taking in boys who are hard to manage and hard to have, you know, maybe disruptive in the home. And so for that, he's, you know, he received praise and said, good job. Not everyone could kind of do that. Prokopishin was in a position of authority for these boys. They were assigned to this house. This isn't their choice to be there. Um, But it's the place that, you know, they're being told you need to go and you'll be provided shelter and care and food and support. By the time the investigation got underway in 2009, the Prokopitians had been operating a foster home for nearly 20 years. And during that time, 55 teenage boys had come under their care. This case started with just one young man coming forward. 
he is an extremely troubled young man. He has an extensive criminal record, much of it uh, involving significant violence. And I believe it was while he was being interviewed by a probation officer for some of his own crimes that he uh, first disclosed um, that he was the victim of Mr. Prohibition. Uh, the probation officer then was able to convince him to take the matter to the police. So that was uh, the genesis of the investigation. The police then went and did interviews on many of the other young men as well. Many of them disclosed that, yes, indeed, that they were also assaulted in remarkably similar fashions by their former foster father. That's veteran Crown Gord Haight. He prosecuted the Prokopitian case. This was a home which was often viewed as almost a home of last resort because many of the boys that went into that home were getting into criminal trouble. And it was either that they stay within that foster home, otherwise they didn't have good release plans and they'd be detained within the Calgary um, Young Offender Centre. So it really was a home of last resort. For those looking on the outside, yes, it, he would have looked saintly. Uh, he was taking in troubled young men that nobody else wanted. Before long, it became clear the abuse went beyond just one victim. A one-time award-winning foster parent in Calgary is facing more charges of sexual assault tonight. Global News has learned that another former foster child of Gary Prokopitian has come forward with a claim of abuse. As Nancy Hicks reports, the investigation is not over. Global News has learned police have laid two new charges. The allegations were that uh, there was money exchanged for sexual favours, and so he was charged with a form of prostitution. Um, procuring prostitution. Prokopition is also charged with sexual assault by a person in a position of trust. This brings the number of former Prokopition foster children to come forward up to five. Police say likely because of the media attention his case has received. There was 55 kids that went through Gary Prokopition's home when he was a foster parent and at this point we have five kids that have come forward with allegations so there could potentially be more. The latest allegations stem from incidents spanning between May of 1999 and December of 2001. Police say no matter how long ago abuse has happened, it needs to be reported. It is important, I think, for them to be heard and, and for them to be believed that this, ha this happened. Prokopition remains out on bail. He's not supposed to have contact with children. I think I probably just scratched the surface, to be honest, but at least it became public and he no longer can be a foster parent. He'll never foster parent again, so hopefully it's prevented future victims. Detective Witt told me there were some major challenges to overcome in this case. This investigation was complicated because um, these weren't victims who wanted to come forward, which is very common when you're just when you're dealing with sexual assault and you know those issues of self-blame and shame and just not it's so private and people just don't want to talk about it. So that was a real obstacle in the investigation. Victim blaming and questioning, you know, really did this really happen or did you bring this on or you know for them society was never 
I don't think they probably ever felt supported by the time they were in this situation by any government agency, any family member. Like, that's why they're in those homes. And how do you, who are you going to turn to? Who do you trust to turn to? And it's, again, those mixed feelings of whatever that is, you know, being betrayed by that person in authority or listening to that person in authority or the shame and embarrassment and confusion of allowing this male to perform oral sex on you. And they would have those questions too, I'm sure. Well, why didn't I just stop them? Or why why did I let that happen? And it, it was just so complicated. I think it just comes down to it. It's, it's, there's no one straight answer. It's just very complicated and hard. But the consistent thing is no one wants to talk about it. And that's what they prey on, right? Like that's that's how these things happen. And they've happened through history on, you know, on sports teams, in group homes, in families. Like it goes on for a long time before someone either catches someone or someone finally talks. I, I saw that over and over again in child abuse. Gord Haidt said each of the victims shared a similar experience in the Prokopitian home. They described a period of grooming, an attempt to normalize inappropriate sexual behavior that was followed by abuse. He would often set this up by making sexual innuendo, sexual jokes. There was much talk about uh, male genitalia and the size of everyone's genitalia, he would pass this off as, as jokes. This is a joking household, and he'd even say that to social workers who, who might visit on occasion. That You know, uh, this is a, a joking household, though. There's lots of off-color jokes, and that's just the way it is, and, and the boys uh, all seem to enjoy it. Of course, not long after uh, a boy would enter the home, the uh, off-color jokes would then respond to invitations to actually uh, display their genitalia. And then it would move on to touching. And most typically what would happen is uh, the accused would pay the boys to allow him to perform oral sex on them. And in, in terms of the actual sexual offending itself, it was remarkably similar across all the victims in this case. There were at least a couple of other incidents involving um, the accused at, on one instance receiving um, oral sex from one of the uh, victims. And with respect to one of the other uh, victims, it also involved actual intercourse. Just to clarify, victims said Prokopitian would sexually abuse them, and that would be followed up by some sort of reward. So anytime one of the boys was sexually abused um, by uh, Mr. Prokopitian, he would follow it up with a modest payment. I should note, it wasn't always money. And only the boys can really speak to the amount of trauma this impacted them on but you know when we say paid in money it's also sometimes in one case it was a winter coat and it's it's the it's that trust factor like you're supposed to be able to trust this person and this person is asking you to do these things 
and it's it it's wrong and they you know a lot of them reported to me they knew it was wrong but they don't have anywhere else to go and they're desperate and this is who they've been told to trust like what are you supposed to do it's it's so complicated and then it brought on questions for them like i know one of the boys said to me well i don't know because i let this happen does that mean i'm gay i don't think i'm gay like it's being a teenager is a confusing time at the best of times you factor in a history of abuse and trauma from wherever they were coming from to bring them to that foster home and addiction issues and that is a like perfect storm of all these things going on and then you have someone else who now the government has assigned you to be in this place with this person who's supposed to be trustworthy and instead he's using his authority to do bad things to you like it's just it's very confusing and very overwhelming i would guess you know i would never want to speak for them but it just it must have felt like an impossible situation at times and and what are your other options like i don't think they had a lot of options Prokopishin used threats and manipulation to continue abusing boys in his care, over and over. You know, who would believe you if you ever uh, um, went to the authorities about what's going on? I'm foster father of the year and you're a a young criminal. The most obvious uh, way he would manipulate them is, is by exploiting their substance abuse issues. All of these boys had various levels of addictions, either to alcohol or drugs, or most often both. And of course, they didn't have money to support those uh, habits. He was in a position of enormous power over them. And in fact, the charges here were not sexual assault or sexual interference. They were all sexual exploitation because the vast majority of the abuse occurred on boys that were above the age of consent, above the age of 16. But the consent was the consent, so to speak, was obtained by way of the accused abuse of his authority over these young boys. Um, and it's and it's that that made it a criminal offense, sexual exploitation. I can't help but wonder whether the entire purpose of becoming a uh, foster home or becoming a foster parent was to do just that. He wouldn't take in in any other kids but teenage boys. For sure, he was a predator and I would argue that he knew, you know, he'd had so many of these boys through the system. He knows their weaknesses, their addiction issues and what they, you know, that level of desperation and what they need and and the lack of uh, support that they probably felt for a very long time. Like you have to understand these boys are in foster home. So the people who they originally should have been able to rely on had already failed them. And those are their parents. And now they're looking to strangers to support them. Like they're very vulnerable. I think children in foster homes are very vulnerable and Prokopishin preyed on that and took advantage of it. The prosecution encountered many of the same issues Detective Witt did in investigating the case. Many of the boys didn't want to testify or participate at all in the court proceedings. None of them were too keen on sharing or or discussing details of the offenses. And yeah, it was very clear uh, to me as a prosecutor when interviewing 
the victims and while they were testifying on the stand that this was incredibly humiliating to them to have to describe in great detail what uh, the accused was doing to them and their participation in it. None of them were happy about having to speak to them. And indeed, one of the boys themselves threatened to commit suicide if he was forced to testify. That young man's name was Michael Matthews. All of the victims in this case were teenage boys when they were abused and victims of sexual abuse. So their identities are protected by a court-imposed publication ban. Michael Matthews is the only one of the victims I'm able to identify by name. I'll explain more about that in a bit. He was one of many young boys who at first denied being abused by Prokopition. When the um, investigation was initially started, he was interviewed and he even said in his testimony, he was quite angry with the other boys for bringing this complaint forward because he enjoyed being in the Prokopition household that much. So yes, he initially denied uh, to the police any improper conduct on Mr. Prokopition's part. It wasn't until a couple of years later that he had a change of heart and gave a further statement to the police where he detailed that indeed he was a victim of uh, Gary Prokopition as well. Mr. Matthews was in some ways very charming. Uh, he was, as I said, someone who was initially extremely reluctant to cooperate with the prosecution. He and, and threatened suicide if he was forced to. Ultimately, he spoke to another one of the victims who testified. It was a person he was living with at the time and uh, was convinced that perhaps he would uh, he'd be able to uh, come out and testify. Michael was extremely stressed about testifying. He was hungover, yes. Yeah, and he, he admitted that on the stand. Now that said, notwithstanding the fact that he clearly had gone on a bender the night before, he knew his transcript backwards and forwards. He was an incredibly well-prepared witness. Gary Prokopition's entire defense was to make it look like the boys were lying. It was a challenging case because not surprisingly, these boys came from troubled backgrounds and were getting involved in criminal offenses themselves. Some of them have continued their criminal careers into their adulthood. Uh, two of the uh, young men who testified and ultimately um, whose testimony secured convictions against the accused have significant criminal records, adult criminal records. And of course, uh, when the Crown has witnesses with uh, significant criminal records, defense can fairly question whether these people are in fact credible, whether they're worthy of belief. So yes, that does make it considerably challenging. Um, the one thing that the Crown had to work with in this case was the fact that uh, all of these boys had remarkably similar stories about the details of how Mr. Prokopition would sexually assault them. 
such that I was able to make an application. In law, we call this a similar fact evidence application. The court recognized there was a potential for collusion among the complainants in this case. They could all contact each other, and many had. But the judge ruled that didn't happen in this case and said the similar fact evidence corroborated the evidence of the victims. As the court proceedings unfolded, Prokopition showed no emotion. Not only was there no remorse, he maintained his innocence uh, while being interviewed both by um, the uh, author of a pre-sentence report as well as by a forensic psychiatrist prior to sentencing. He essentially told uh, the authors of those reports that uh, these boys were all lying and that they were doing so that they could uh, be part of a lawsuit against him and the government and that the allegations against him were all fabricated. So no, there was certainly no remorse. Indeed, he, he maintained his innocence. It was true a couple of the victims were part of a lawsuit, but the Crown argued that didn't mean the boys were lying or had come forward for financial gain. As a prosecutor, I actually led the fact that uh, two of the boys uh, were part of ongoing civil proceedings against the accused and against the government, because it was true. And of course, defense uh, uh, said that predictably that this was a motive for them to lie. My response in argument was simply that if these young men had their uh, lives ruined as a result of being sexually abused by their foster parent, uh, it's not at all surprising that they would want reparations for such. Gary Prokopishin was charged with six counts of having sexual contact with a youth by a person in a position of trust or authority. In the end, one of the complainants didn't appear to give evidence, so that charge was withdrawn. Prokopishin was also acquitted of one count. Ultimately, he was convicted of sexual abuse against four foster boys in his care. In May of 2015, nearly six years after the investigation into Prokopishin's abuse began, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. You might think that's where this story ends, but it was really only the beginning. Just a few months later, I was reporting on a sentencing in an unrelated case. I post all my stories on a Facebook page. Nancy H You can find answers to just about anything online, but what about those mysteries that can't seem to be solved? Spooky secrets which have stumped even the cleverest of clickers. Well, set the mouse aside because the myths have met their match in the Spotify original. Internet Urban Legends. Every Tuesday, evidence expert Loie Lane and skeptic Eleanor Barnes investigate the Internet's creepiest conundrums, covering conspiracy theories and combing through clues to separate hoax from haunt. Together, they tackle the terrors of Twitter, TikTok horror stories, paranormal YouTube videos, and every unsettling Internet tale in between. Each episode is chock full of disturbing details which are either truly demented or ripe for debunking. Can the gruesome twosome solve these mysteries? Or will they remain internet urban legends? Wade through the weirdest stories on the web and follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Internet Urban Legends. Listen free only on Spotify.
fixed crime beat. And often, those posts generate a lot of discussions. One comment stood out to me. I recognized the name, Michael Matthews, one of the young men abused by Gary Prokopishin. That night, Michael was posting on my page. He was upset because the sentence in the unrelated case was harsher than the sentence his foster father received, and he thought that was unfair. I decided to reach out. I sent him a direct message. To say he was less than thrilled to hear from me is a bit of an understatement. He sent a message back. The gist was, everyone has always accused the kids of lying, so why would I be any different? But there was something about his messages, call it a reporter's intuition, I don't know. Something told me I needed to keep talking to him. Trust me, he did not make it easy for me. And it was clear the guy I was chatting with was not always sober. In fact, quite the opposite. As you know, most of the time I was drinking. It was obvious he needed someone to talk to. No one wanted to care or listen. Well, the way you're treating me, you're treating me like you cared. Like, it wasn't about what I've been through. It's about how are you doing now? We messaged back and forth for about a month before he decided he was ready to open up and share something with me he hadn't shared with anyone else in his life. I don't know what led me to trust you. But as you talk, the way you talk to me, treating me with respect and understanding, without even me thinking yet you understood, like I felt like I could talk about something and I wasn't going to be judged. He sent me a copy of his police statement, the transcript of his interview with investigators. That night, I stayed up and read all 82 pages. It was horrific. His abuse went far beyond the abuse at the Prokopishin home. And for the first time, it became clear why he became a troubled youth in the first place and why he was placed in that particular home. For the next two years, we continued chatting back and forth until one day he decided he was ready to share his story, the full story, publicly. With the help of the prosecutor, Gord Haight, Michael had the publication ban on his identity lifted. That's almost unheard of. Uh, I know, or I've been involved in one other case where the victim of an offense asked for the publication ban to be lifted. Other than that, that's just never happens. And it's understandable. It's the, the details of these offenses are humiliating, and none of these boys were all that happy about having to testify in a public uh, setting like a courtroom about what happened to them and their participation in it. That is how we can mention his name, Michael Matthews, on this episode. Michael's earliest memory is from when he was three years old. That's when he was abandoned by his parents, along with his brother and sister. They were left alone in a garage. There was no food, 
and no one to care for them. Police eventually found them, and that marked the beginning of Michael's life in foster care. He would spend the next 15 years of his life in the system, most of those suffering unspeakable abuse. He was always too afraid to tell anyone. It was only as an adult that Michael was approached by police. Investigators were looking into allegations of sexual misconduct at the hands of Gary Prokopishin. And that's when Michael disclosed abuse of another kind in another foster home. It's that abuse that turned him into a troubled young boy, setting the stage for what would happen in the Prokopishin home. When Michael was taken from that garage, he was taken to a home devoid of joy and love. My childhood was taken away from me. There was no fun to it. She'd say, oh, I'm your mother, I'm your mother now, but she never treated us like she was our mother. Michael told me he spent most of his childhood locked in a tiny room. I was smaller than a jail cell. I had a bunk bed, a dresser. Yeah, we'd have a piss bucket in there. In hindsight, Michael says it's hard to know which was worse, the isolation of being imprisoned in the room or the torture he experienced outside of it. It started out with just like hand spankings, but then it upgraded to the belt and then to the electrical cord and then the broom handles and curtain rods. And, oh, it got worse and way worse over the years, yeah. It recorded at one time for an hour and 45 minutes that she was strapped in my hands. And then if, it, if you didn't hold your hands out, then she'd hit you across the back until you get your hands out. Oh, she gave me a couple black eyes from hitting me in the face with the broom handles. So she, she'd drag us by our ears and drag us into the bathroom and just hold us down in, uh, in the shower under ice cold water. Those that happened many, many times. There's one form of abuse that stands out above the rest. Yeah, uh, she'd put like, make me hold laundry soap in my mouth and then stand in the corner, make you take a bite right out of the bar of soap and just hold it in your mouth or grab a scoop of sunlight laundry detergent and just pour it in your mouth. I need to tell you, when I first met Michael, I noticed he avoided smiling. He didn't want anyone to notice he was missing teeth. Like my teeth are all falling out of my head, like all my enamel's gone. So that after I turned 18, they just started falling apart. I have pure hatred towards her now. As a kid living in that foster home, he never told anyone what was happening. I never did know. My brother tried to, but they talked to her right after, and uh, they made it look like we were lying. That the, we were just trying to make allegations against her to get her in trouble. Michael always felt the system was set up to protect offenders. And in his mind, a few simple changes might have spared him from years of abuse. They never just showed up randomly. Like if they just show up out of the blue and then like do the house inspection or make it just so that you're not pre-warning them to get everything in order so that it looks all like they're doing everything right. Michael stayed in that home for 11 years. When I told her, like, when I was 14 that I had had enough, that's when she decided to call crisis and say that I was out of control and she couldn't handle me no more. 
and they had to go, please come pick me up and uh, take me to Avenue 15 until they could find a new place for me. I was actually extremely happy finally to be out of that place after so many years. I, I didn't know where I was gonna be going. I was worried, but I was extremely happy to be out of there. The next foster home Michael was placed in was the one he'll always remember as his one true home. Well, I was treated like a kid. I was able to be a kid. I was able to go out and go to the parks and have friends. And... But years of abuse in his first foster home had taken a toll on Michael. And even though he loved his new home, he started acting out. I had finally felt good and then just lost it all. He only lasted three months in that new home. The placement ended when he got suspended from school. Well, I, I got expelled from school during the final exams of grade nine. I was like, well, if you're expelled from school, you can't live in the home, which makes sense, because all the kids gotta go to school. And then I ended up in a group home where I went nuts. And, tried to strangle myself. Don't know exactly what set me off, but it just it just started falling apart. And then God started getting into the drinking and then got suicidal and ended up in the psych ward at the children's hospital. In September of that year, Michael was 14. And that's when Gary Prokopishin picked him up from the psych ward of a Calgary hospital. In hindsight, he sees how Prokopishin preyed on him and the other boys. Easy, easy prey for him. I could see that more than ever because the fact that, like, he literally picked me up of a mental health work, and then to find out that he only takes in troubled youth. But at the time, he didn't see the manipulation. Instead, he saw a home that allowed him the freedom to do whatever he wanted, including drinking. There was always a catch. I was really into my alcohol and my drugs, and I always needed money for it. So he, he knew he probably knew he had a way to make it so that he knew that we would always need, like, need the money. He said the abuse began within months of his arrival at the Prokopishin home. He'd wait till there was no one else around and then he'd make a dirty joke or if he asked to borrow some cash or uh, he'd uh, ask for things like show me your penis or put it in my hand or, and then it just started getting worse and worse. I put it in my mouth. And, yeah, he threatened that the older brothers, if we told anyone that they probably wouldn't believe us anyways, but the older brothers would uh, come, would beat us up. The more the abuse happened, the more Michael turned to alcohol to escape. It was a way different type of abuse and the way it was dealt with than what I was grew up with. By the time police were investigating Prokopishin, Michael was a mess. The trauma he survived consumed him. It just seems like I missed out on a lot that most kids usually get can cope. Well, I was really good at hiding how I felt until I got older. Well, I 
put me right into straight alcohol and drug. It's like ruined any chances that I thought I had of uh, going somewhere in life. I just now, I, I didn't try in school. I just only did enough to pass. I'd start drinking and that's when it'd come out. That's when I started to do getting angry and depressed. And He was once again suicidal. Oh yeah, I've had three attempts, three failures. Then there was the trial, which came with more stress. Uh, it did weigh, take some weight off, but then it also made it worse too, because then I, now I had the hassle of the courts and the judges and the cops, and the, it also it continued to put stress on me. It wasn't until I sat in the courtroom and did my testimony and sat across from him, and he had no emotion at all. And that I'd finally gotten it off my chest is when I started feeling better. Even if you're mad, that you think you'd have some sort of emotion towards what's going on, but nothing. The end of the trial didn't bring closure for Michael. And honestly, there likely won't be. He's still dealing with this case. Prokopition is now up for release after serving five years of his 10-year sentence. He was eligible for full parole in May of 2018 and is scheduled to have a hearing in front of the parole board in June of 2020. While Prokopition can't be a foster parent anymore, Michael still worries he'll find a way to victimize more young boys. Oh, I know he will. Like, the thing is, he's a manipulator. And he always makes you think he's doing the best for you. This case shook public confidence and rocked the entire foster care system. It spurred the Alberta government to make changes to the system. Unannounced visits at foster homes now take place and caseworkers talk to kids regularly without the caregiver present. I should note, Michael only disclosed the abuse at the hands of his first foster mother during his interview with police about Prokopition in 2010. That foster mother was investigated and ended up being charged with 12 different counts, including administering a noxious substance to Michael for the laundry soap in his mouth. In 2017, she pleaded guilty to one count of assault with a weapon. She was sentenced to one year probation and a $100 surcharge. According to an agreed statement of facts, she admitted to using a fly swatter to strike Michael. All other charges were either stayed or withdrawn. Michael told me he felt the justice system failed him in this case. He wrote a scathing victim impact statement, but most of it wasn't allowed to be read in court. He wanted her to know he doesn't go one day without thinking of the hell she put him through as a child. Michael wishes he could go back and tell his teenage self to ignore all the threats and reach out for help. Oh, I would have told him to go forward right as soon as the first time it happened. That's really the reason why Michael wanted to share his story. He wanted to stand tall and speak out against those who harmed him. 
He would no longer feel shame for the abuse he suffered, and anyone else suffering abuse could see that they're not alone. I knew the day he did the interview with me would be awful for him. To share his story, he had to open up about things he tried not to think about. So I wanted to do something to surprise him, to leave him with a positive memory of that day. I knew from our many chats over the course of several years that he was a huge fan of the Calgary Flames. The last time Michael had seen the team play was with Gary Prokopishin. So I reached out to their amazing media relations people and arranged for him to visit the Flames locker room at the Saddle Dome and meet his favorite player. Nice to meet you. How's it been? Oh, it's awesome, yeah. To come to practice today? Yeah, I did. Yeah. I got to see you guys play. Yeah. That was an awesome game there. Seeing the smile on his face at that moment was priceless. But me shaking hands with Johnny Goudreau, I don't forget that day. <laughs> that day is etched in my mind, and I thank you, thank you, thank you so much for it. And there was another surprise in store for Michael. After opening up to Global News about suffering years of abuse. Grab a scoop of sunlight did laundry detergent and just pour it in your mouth and make you hold it. His story struck a chord with our viewers. I looked over at her and I said, I want you to reach out to Nancy because this is something we got to help with. And he's finally seeing some good in the world. I'm going to restore your mouth to health and I'm going to do it at no cost to you. All right, thank you. <laughs> it took hours and hours in the dentist chair and it's still a work in progress. But Michael finally has a bright new smile. Oh yeah, the confidence boost it gave me, even when even when they put those first temps in there, like to see shiny whites and I don't, like, my teeth weren't hurting every time I bite. Like just looking at it, everyone's like, oh, get your teeth. Like I've had managers at work out here, it's like, oh. How do you keep your teeth so white? It feels great that people notice the smile on my face. In the process of sharing his story, Michael has impacted a lot of people, including Gord Haight. Yeah, as a prosecutor, um, I try to avoid becoming emotionally um, uh, attached or interested, frankly, in any of my witnesses or my uh, victims. I do that because as a prosecutor, I have an obligation to remain uh, dispassionate and objective. And I also do it, as I say, almost uh, because I'm too focused on the nuts and bolts of proving my case. Uh, Mr. Matthews was a very notable exception. Uh, he did, um, despite my best efforts to avoid that, he did uh, manage to connect with me emotionally. I also received many messages from victims of abuse who wanted Michael to know he inspired them to go forward to police. That was one of his goals. He wanted to help erase some of the stigma around what he's gone through. I have had people hug me on the train. Random people I didn't even know hug me on the train and say thank you. All he ever wanted, his entire life, was someone to care. 
He only experienced a loving home for three months in his entire childhood. Michael didn't have a parent to love him, nurture him, or teach him. It's hard to describe what the abuse and abandonment has done to him. I mean, he's a normal guy who works hard to make a living for himself. But he doesn't know the paternal comfort of someone taking care of him when he gets sick or figuring small things out. Those little challenges that might seem easy for most can be extremely stressful for Michael. That's the one I don't have is life skills. Yes, I can go to work every day. Yes, I can work my ass off. But my nat- natural life skills, I don't have those. I said, ever since you put my story on the air, I don't try to explain myself to people. I say, look me up and understand me from there. And I get a lot more respect that way because they know what I've been through. To many people, I'm sure Michael would just be another story, another statistic. But to me, he's so much more than that. I can't really explain the special bond we share. I'm sure you have those people in your life too. They're there for you when you need them, like I am for Michael. Sometimes all it takes to help someone is to be there to listen. Well, years and years you've been taking care of my mental health, even though it's only been over the phone or over Facebook message, just having someone to talk to when um, when I'm feeling all stressed and everything else. Like, it's it's been life-saving. Thanks to Michael for his trust and willingness to share his story. If you've been the victim of abuse or know someone who has, please reach out for help. You can call police or reach out to the Kids Helpline. Please consider telling someone you trust. Crime Beat is written and produced by me, Nancy Hickst, with producer Dila Velasquez. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Special thanks to photographer-editor Danny Lantella for his work on this episode. I also want to thank our production assistant, Ryan Robinson. And thanks to Chris Bassett, the National Director of Content and Editorial Standards for Global News. I would love to have you tell a friend about this podcast, and you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing Crime Beat on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you have a question about one of the episodes, send them my way. You can reach me on Twitter at Nancy Hickst, on Facebook at Nancy Hickst Crime Beat, and I'd love to have you join me for added content on Instagram at Nancy.Hickst. That's N-A-N-C-Y dot H-I-X-T. Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time. A gunman on the loose in a quiet coastal town. By morning, 22 people were dead. I'm Sarah Ritchie. I live in Halifax, and I'm a reporter for Global News. On my new podcast, 13 Hours, Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre, we'll examine every hour of this tragedy to try and piece together what happened and what could have been done to prevent it. You can listen to 13 Hours, Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.